You know, one of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is we like to take uh, whole books of the Bible and study through them. We go through them verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that we can get the full message, everything that God intended to teach us through that particular book, because God gave us these books as whole units, and therefore the best way we can really hear his voice in these words is to study a whole book in its entirety, get the whole message. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel were originally one book, um, as were the books of First and Second Kings, but they were divided up, and you might be wondering, well, why did they do that? Well, here's why, because when they were translating the Bible into Greek, they weren't, I mean, what for us is just a few pages in a, you know, fairly small book, so to say. For them, there would be these massive scrolls, right? So to save space, they divided First and Second Sam, or First Samuel, or they divided the book of Samuel into First and Second Samuel and Kings into First and Second Kings, and same with the Chronicles. And so really, this is one book. It's been divided into two parts, and the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, contains some of the most epic, the greatest stories in the Bible, right? It's in these books that we have the story of David, who the Bible refers to as the man after God's own heart. And as we study through this book, this study, we'll be seeing this is really the theme of this book. It is a heart for God. And what we'll see as we journey through First and Second Samuel and the stories of, of several people, some of them you've probably heard of, people like Samuel and Saul and David and Jonathan and Absalom, as we look at these stories of these people, the focus will be on the attitudes which affect their actions, the attitudes which affect actions. And that's really the key. In this book, uh, God doesn't just want to tell us what happened. He, wants, he doesn't just want to tell us, well, these guys did some things that were good and these guys did some things that were bad. What he wants to do is take us deeper than that. He wants to take us beneath the surface of just actions to actually analyze the attitudes which affected their actions, right? The motivations of their hearts, the fundamental things that they had going on in their hearts, their beliefs, their hopes, their fears, the things which drove them to make the decisions that they did. And the key verse uh, which really lays out for us the message of First and Second Samuel, it really kind of sums it up for us, is found in chapter 16 where we read this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that is so important for you to consider. It's so important for me to consider in regard to my own life and your own life. It, what are the fundamental underlying motivations of our hearts? What are, what are the things going on in your heart that drive your actions? And my prayer is that as we go through this study, that each and every one of you would develop exactly that. You would develop a heart for God. That's the goal. That's what we're going, that's where we're going with this. That's what we're getting at with this. That each of us would develop a heart for God. So First and Second Samuel uh, belong to what are referred to in the Old Testament. You know, it's a section of books in the Old Testament called the historical books. And these are books like Judges and Kings and Chronicles and others which tell us the history of the nation of Israel. But yet what, what's really important to see as we look at these historical books of the Old Testament is that these aren't just the history of Israel, but this is ultimately the story of Jesus Christ. 
One thing I've often said here at Whitefields is that the Bible is not just a bunch of detached stories that give us some random insights about God. No, absolutely not. The Bible, if you'll look at it, it forms one grand narrative, right? It is exactingly, very carefully, extremely focused on telling one story and only one story. It leaves out so much of history and includes certain parts of history. And you wonder, well, why did they include that story and not all this other stuff? Well, here's why. Because it is extremely laser focused on telling one story. And that is the story of God's mission in the world which has fallen into sin and the curse of death, and God is redeeming it. That's the story. And all the way back in the, in the first book of the Bible, God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise. He sees this world which has fallen under the curse of sin and death, which is twisted and mangled because sin has come into the world, and he says, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to save souls, and I'm going to make all things right. And then he goes on there to say exactly how he will do that. He says he will do it by sending a redeemer, a man who is like no other man, who will come and he will save us from the curse of sin and death. And so as the Bible goes on, what happens is we learn more and more about this one, this one who is coming, this redeemer, what he will be like, how he will save us, where he will be born, what kind of things he's going to do when he comes. And it all builds up to this climax, to this pinnacle, to this point where on the very first Christmas, a baby is born to a poor young couple in a, a dirty, you know, in a dirty stable in a small town in the Middle East, and his name is Jesus. You see, the whole Bible is the story of Jesus Christ. Even as we open up to 1 Samuel, ultimately what we're reading is the story of Jesus Christ. Maybe you remember that one of the names which was given to Jesus when he walked on the earth, one of the names that people called him and commonly referred to him as was Son of David. And the reason for that was because, as we're going to see in First and Second Samuel, God made a promise to David that the Redeemer, this one who all of history has been building up to and funneling towards, the Savior of the world, that he said he will come through your family line. And so as we study this book, keep that in mind, that this too is part of the story of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible, it's about him. And that means that no matter what part of the Bible we're studying at the moment, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. And it's so important to view the Bible and read the Bible that way. If you aren't reading the Bible with the view of how everything ultimately points to Jesus, well then you are t totally missing the point. So here in 1 Samuel, uh, basically in this story we have three main characters and the book kind of divides up the first couple chapters about the first character then the next few chapters about the next one and then finally about the third one and those characters are Samuel, Saul, and David. These guys are the main characters of this story. Today in chapter one we're going to see the birth of Samuel and as we look at Samuel's birth what we're reminded of is that many times the best things in life don't come easily. Have you experienced that? The best things in life don't come easily. That We have a big reminder of that here in this story. And sometimes God makes us wait for the things that we ask for or desire in order to do a deep work in our heart. Sometimes God makes us wait. 
So the title of today's message is More Than You Bargained For. And there are three key elements in this story that we're going to be looking at as we read it. Number one, we're going to be looking at Hannah's predicament. Number two, we're going to be looking at Hannah's prayer. And finally, we're going to be looking at Hannah's praise. So Hannah's predicament, her prayer, and her praise. Let's get into this. First, we see Hannah's predicament. So this is 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the first was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So a few years ago, uh, some of my family members moved out to um, West Jordan, Utah, and they live uh, very close, actually, kind of in between West Jordan and Lehigh, Utah. Does anybody, Lehigh, Utah, ring a bell for anybody? Yeah? One person. Awesome. Okay, well, maybe if I put it this way. Uh, the reason why I thought you might be familiar with Lehigh, Utah is because Lehigh, Utah is the setting for a reality television program. All right? Is it ringing any bells now? Reality television program called Sister Wives. Sister Wives takes place in Lehigh, Utah, and it's surrounding the life of a man named Cody Brown, who's a fundamentalist Mormon who has four wives, right? They live in polygamy, and they have, I don't know, like a million and a half kids or something, right? So my cousin moved out there uh, to that area because of work. Uh, works in the high-tech industry. But uh, they told me, and I, I've heard from my other cousins, that in that area, polygamy is very widespread. Uh, my, cousins go, my cousin's children go to school with other kids who live in polygamous families. They estimate that in the state of Utah and the surrounding area, you know, into Arizona and, and Wyoming and Nevada and all that, uh, that the number of people practicing polygamy is between between 50,000 and 100,000 people. And that's a lot of people, right? Uh, and the number is actually on the rise. And part of the reason is because they have like way a lot of kids, right? And in fact, just within the last month, I don't know if you've followed this news, but a law has been uh, in place for, for many years in Utah, which was repealed in the last month. And this law was in place to prevent uh, polygamy and bigamy. And that law was repealed, which more or less paved the way for polygamy to be practiced openly in Utah, whereas before they had to really stay under the radar. So out of curiosity, you know, I started watching a few episodes of Sister Wives. And uh, what I was looking for was I was curious to know how these people talk about polygamy and why they do it. And basically the explanation that they gave is that in the Old Testament, many godly people had multiple wives, right? Abraham had two wives. Jacob had more than one wife. Even David had multiple wives. And so they say this is a mandate from God. This is not only something that God approves of, but this is something which God commands that God has ordained that people should do. And uh, over and over in the few episodes that I've watched, uh, you know, you see these wives who share a husband and they're basically saying, you know, the only reason I do this is because I have to, because my religion commands that I do this. Otherwise, I wouldn't choose this lifestyle because it's very hard. And you see the struggles, you know, the jealousy and the, the crying and all that stuff. 
Well, here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see this man, Elkanah, and he has two wives, Hannah and Penina. But here's the thing that I love about the Old Testament. One of my favorite things is that because it's a lot of narrative, it kind of just reports the news, right? And it leaves you to figure out, well, was that a good thing or was that a bad thing, right? It just tells you, hey, here's what happened. This guy had two wives. And you got to be like, well... Does that mean I should have two wives? No, it just means that you've got to figure that out, right? You have to analyze it. It's kind of like if you read the newspaper and it tells you that a murder took place or a robbery. That's not condoning murder or robbery. It's not saying, hey, you should try this. It's a lot of fun. It's just reporting the facts of what happened. One of my favorite sections in the Longmont Times call, I'm a big fan of the Longmont Times call personally, uh, and one of my favorite sections is that every Friday they put out the police news. I don't know if you ever read it, but sometimes it's hilarious. It actually makes me glad to live in a place like Longmont where the kind of things make the newspaper that make the newspaper here, right? They probably wouldn't make the paper in most places in the country, right? Like I remember one time I, I Woke up on a Friday, checked the police news, and said a, a huffy bicycle was stolen off of a porch on 6th Avenue, you know? That wouldn't make the news in most places. One of my favorite ones is I recently read that a man stole a woman's phone in the parking lot of a, a King Supers, I think down on Hover, and then he gave it back because she tried to hit him with her car, right? And so he just gave it back, and it said no further investigation is, being, is taking place. Well, thanks for letting us know, you know? <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, it, that guy stole that woman's phone. She tried to hit him with her car. That happened. That doesn't mean that you should go out and do the same thing. This is the same thing with the Old Testament. This is what happened. It's reporting the news. It doesn't mean that you should do it. It's not a recommendation. And that is one of the great challenges of reading the Old Testament. And one of the things which I believe makes studying the Old Testament, especially in a setting like this, uh, very rich. Because you have to look at it and analyze for yourself. All right, so here's what happened. Now, was that good or was that bad, right? Was that an example that I should follow or was that a warning for me of something that I should avoid? Uh, in order to answer those questions, you have to look at the whole counsel of the Bible. What does the rest of the Bible say about a given topic, like in this case, marriage or polygamy? So you look back, like first of all, you have the first mention of marriage, right, which sets a precedent for the design and purpose of marriage, and there you see it. In Genesis, the design, the intention for marriage, God from the beginning designed it this way, that there'd be a union between a man and a woman before God together forever, right? So furthermore, you also notice that whenever you look at polygamy in the Bible, it's always bad, right? Never like, is it like, hey, that was pretty great, actually, that that guy had two wives. No, it's always a disaster, right? Abraham had two wives, and what a mess that was, right? And Jacob had two wives. Yes, he did, but that resulted in so much grief and sorrow. Remember, they tried to kill their brother because there was all this tension in the family. There was jealousy and strife. I mean, polygamy was not something that God ordained. What it was was a practice that was commonplace in the pagan culture of the Middle East, which the people of God unquestioningly adopted, not because God had told them to, but because everybody else was doing it. So they did it too without questioning whether or not this was what God wanted them to do. And there's a great parallel there, and I hope you see that, and I hope you think this through. I can't help but wonder what the things are in our culture, which would be modern-day parallels to this, certain practices or attitudes or ways of thinking which are commonplace, right? Just kind of accepted. This is what people do. This is what people think. 
Uh, but yet they're not what God really wants us to be doing, right? Back in their day, everybody practiced polygamy. Like it never even crossed their mind that this would be something that they shouldn't do. But that doesn't mean it was right. It doesn't mean that it was God's design. And surely there are things in our day that everybody does, right? They're just commonplace, but that doesn't mean that they're God's design. And so what we need to do is with every area of our lives, we need to come to the scriptures and we need to see what is God's design for our lives, right? Because what you find is that when you, uh, when you follow God's design, that leads you to the most happiness, the greatest level of fulfillment in life. And deviating from that results in unnecessary grief. So there we have that. Uh, let's look at verse 3. It says this, Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, uh, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, we're going to read about them next week, they were priests of the Lord. Now during this time in Israel, uh, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle, which was kind of the worship center, it was the place where uh, the priest was located, it was the place where sacrifice to God and worship of God took place. It was in Shiloh, which is a, an archaeological site that you can still visit today, and you can see the, the foundation of the temple, is, or I'm sorry, of the tabernacle, is still there in Shiloh. Uh, so this is a place where the people would go to worship, and I love this phrase here. It says that Elkanah went up to worship and to sacrifice. The two are tied together in this sentence. And that's really appropriate because worship and sacrifice truly do go hand in hand. Worship always costs something. Worship is always going to be a sacrifice of your time, of your energy, of your finances even, and a good indicator of what's most important to you, or to anybody really, is, you know, what, the good indicator of your values are what are the things that you're willing to sacrifice for. Every person in the world, think about this, every person is willing to sacrifice something good for something which they deem to be better or, of, or more desirable or of greater value. Every person in the world is willing to sacrifice something good for something they, deserve, they deem to be more precious, more desirable, better. By going to the place of worship and sacrificing, Elkanah is making a statement. He's making a statement that for him, his relationship with God is more precious to him and more desirable to him than his money or his time or his energy. His relationship with God is something that he wants to invest in. It's something he wants to grow and build and improve. And the question for you and for me is, how about you? Does your commitment to the Lord cost you something? Does it cost you something? Is seeking God and worshiping, is that something that you make sacrifices for? Is the mission of God something you invest your time and resources into? Elkanah is a good example for us in that he worshiped and sacrificed. The two went hand in hand. Let's read from verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So what would happen is they would go to the place of sacrifice and they would have this ceremonial meal, which means that they would sacrifice an animal and then they would sit around the table and they would eat it together as a feast. So he gives everybody some and he gives double to Hannah because he loves her and his heart goes out to 
to her that her womb is closed. And, and that breaks her heart. And he knows that, right? This would be kind of like you give everybody a quarter pounder, but he gives her a double quarter pounder, right? So verse uh, five, or sorry, verse six. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, that's Penina, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she used to provoke her. Thus Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here's Hannah's predicament, right? This is what we've been looking at, Hannah's predicament. She cannot have children. She's barren. She has a husband who loves her, actually, and treats her well. But the one thing that she really wants more than anything else in life a child. For some reason, God has chosen not to give that to her. Maybe you can relate to Hannah. Maybe uh, you imagined your life a certain way, but it hasn't gone that way. Maybe it seems like the thing, maybe the one thing that you really wanted for yourself it just seems to come so easily for other people. They take it for granted. They don't value it. Where for you, it's the one thing. Just if I could only have that. But yet, for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen for you. It's been said that the natural tendency of the human heart is to turn good things into ultimate things. The natural tendency of the human heart is to turn good things into ultimate things, right? For us in America, in our culture, it tends to be uh, individualistic, right? It tends to be personal gratification and individual achievement. These are the things which are good things that we turn into ultimate things. In ancient cultures, in Eastern cultures, it, it wasn't so individualistic as we've talked about in past weeks. It was much more communal and for them, the family is the ultimate thing. It's more important than anything else. In fact, a family, the family that you have, the children that you have, they are the sole measure of your worth and the value of your life. So a woman who could not have children for whatever reason, she felt worthless and she was regarded by other people as worthless. And so here's Hannah, she can't have children. It's breaking her heart and her sister wife, right, Penina, they, they have to share this husband and, and inevitably there's some level of competition and jealousy and animosity between them. But, but Penina has this one big one up on Hannah, right? Penina has a bunch of kids and Hannah is barren. So Penina just rubs it in, right? Just salt in the wound and she taunts Hannah to the point where Hannah just breaks down. She refuses to eat. She refuses to do anything. She's to the point of despair. And so here's Hannah. She's crying. She's unable to eat and her husband comes up and although he's well-meaning, he says something that's just really dumb actually, right? He says, hey, what's wrong? Aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons, right? This is like on the top 10 list of bonehead things that husbands say in the Bible, right? Hey, why are you depressed? Look, you've got me. Aren't I, aren't I good enough? Come on, look here, right? I know that you're depressed and you won't eat because you want something, but hey, I'm here. Don't forget about me, right? So more than anything, Hannah wants to have a child. And Elkanah, he knows exactly what the problem is. He knows exactly what's burdening her heart. That's why he says, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons, right? 
But the thing is, even though he knows what the problem is, he's unable to solve that problem, right? Only God can solve this problem. This isn't something that Elkanah can do anything about. And many times the same is true of us. That you may look to your spouse or, or to other people to solve the problem of the depression in your heart or the discouragement in your mind or the barrenness in your soul. And even though those people might lend a listening ear or some helpful advice, they can't solve the problem ultimately. Only God can do that. So check out what Hannah does. First we saw her predicament, but now we're going to get to our next point. We're going to look at Hannah's prayer. First we saw Hannah's predicament, now we have Hannah's prayer. Let's look at what, what Hannah does from verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So here's Hannah. She's got this heavy heart. She's got her mind full of questions of why. God, why haven't you allowed me to have children? God, why have you allowed a terrible person like Penina to have the one thing that I only want one of? Why do you give her so many kids, but you don't give me any, you know? And maybe you felt that way too, that you see people who are blessed in ways that you aren't, even though in your mind they might be less deserving than you are. And you ask, why God? Why them and why not me? This is the one and only thing I'm asking for. The one thing, but yet you haven't given it to me. You know, for those of you who relate to Hannah's predicament, I want you to see what Hannah does in her time of despair and frustration, in her time of disappointment and vexation, right? Because it's a great example of the right way to deal with the pain and the questions of your heart. She goes to the tabernacle, she goes to the place of worship, and she pours out her heart to the Lord. She pours out her soul to the Lord. She's just this complete mess right she's weeping before the Lord kind of like that that thing where you're just beside yourself and you got like tears going everywhere and mucus running down your face and and you try to talk but you're totally incoherent you know that's where she's at she's a she's a mess and and Eli the priest sees her and he just thinks that she's drunk right but check out the prayer she prays she says Lord if you'll give me a son then he will be yours I'll give him back to you I will dedicate him to you completely. Now as a Levite, uh, and, that, and he was born in the family of Levi, he would be dedicated to the Lord from age 30 to 50. That was the rule. And Samuel would have been, if the Lord had given her a son, no matter who he had been as the firstborn, as a Levite, he would have been dedicated to the Lord from age 30 to 50. But what she's saying is, I'm not going to hold him back at all. I'll give you everything. He'd be completely yours. All the days of his life, I'll give him to you to serve you completely. 
Hannah had probably prayed countless times about her situation. No doubt, like anybody who truly desires something, she had probably asked God many times that God would fulfill this desire of hers. But when we pray, you know, that's, this is the fact of it, that God can say yes, or God can say no, or God can say, not right now, wait. You know, and, and it's really important that we understand that no is just as valid of an answer to our prayers as yes is. It's an important thing to learn, that God knows things that we don't know. That's such a key fundamental fact for us to learn. God knows more than I do, right? He knows what the ultimate outcome of, of going down a certain path would be. Maybe you think that that's what you need, but God knows, and he says, no, actually, that would not be good for you. And sometimes, like Hannah, God doesn't say yes or no. Sometimes he says, wait. And why? Well, here we have a perfect example of why. Because in the case of Hannah, sometimes God makes us wait for the things that we ask for and desire so that he can do a deep work in our hearts. You see, up until this point, Hannah had wanted to have a child. Why? For her fulfillment. Why? So she would have something to present to her husband. But now she's saying, Lord, if you give me a child, I don't want him for me. I'll just give him back to you. And that's what God was waiting for. Do you see that? That's what God was waiting for. He was waiting for Hannah to get to that point where she would be willing to give everything, to hand everything over to him, where she wouldn't hold anything back because Hannah simply wanted, her vision was too small. She wanted a child to give to her husband. What God wanted was a prophet to give to a nation. God wanted something much bigger, something much bolder, something greater and grander than what Hannah ever had in mind. And so he didn't answer Hannah's prayer immediately because he was waiting to do this work in her heart where she would get to the point of desperation and say, Lord, I just give him all over to you. If you give me this, he'll be yours completely. I'll dedicate him to you. I won't hold anything back. Even the thing that she wants most, he's waiting for her to get to the point where she's even willing to give that up. Check out what happens in verse 17. Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away, went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. That's what Samuel means. It means asked of God. And this boy Samuel, he's going to grow up to be a great man, a giant of a man. He will grow up to be one of the most important figures in the history of Israel, in the history of the whole plan of God's mission to redeem the world and send the Messiah. This man, Samuel, will become the spiritual leader of the nation. He will be a judge and a prophet. He'll be basically like the pastor for the whole nation. And Samuel will be the man who is the kingmaker, so to say. He will be the one who appoints and anoints the first and second kings of Israel. He will be the man who deposes of a king, right? And Hannah, she got way more than she bargained for. That's what I want you to see. Remember, that's the title of our message, More Than You Bargained For. She made a deal with the Lord. She bargained with the Lord. Lord, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you. But Hannah got more than she bargained for. 
She had simply asked for a child, but God gave her a giant, right? He gave her Samuel, a great man who would change history. And I have to tell you this, the same is true for you. You will always get more than you bargained for when you give things over to the Lord, when you give your life over to the Lord, when you dedicate the things that you treasure to the Lord, you will always get more than you bargained for in return. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in a way, that's the irony. That's, it's ironic, right? Maybe even seems counterintuitive. Jesus said, if you really want to live, if you want to live fully and richly and deeply, then you have to lay down your life. Then you have to lay down your dreams and your desires. Lay it all down. Let go of it. Stop trying to make yourself happy. Stop trying to fulfill yourself. Stop seeking your own and give your life. Give everything that you have, everything that you are. Give it over to him. And when you do that, when you let go of it all, that is when, when you hand it over to him, that is when you will really start living. I know that that was my experience. Um, before I gave my life to the Lord, one of my biggest hesitations in, in becoming a Christian and really following Jesus was that I was afraid that I would have to give up uh, things if I wanted to follow Jesus. And, and actually, I mean, it was true. I, I was afraid of what I would have to give up if I would uh, truly follow Jesus. I was afraid of what I would have to do. What would he make me do if I really give my life to Christ? I had this friend at the time who had been telling me and sharing with me about Jesus and, and challenging me to give my life to Christ, to commit myself to walking with Jesus. And, and I was so torn, uh, you know, for, for a, a time there. Uh, I fully believed in God's existence. I believed that the Bible was probably inspired by God. I didn't have a problem with Jesus in any way. I respected him as a great man, and, and I was even willing to believe what the Bible said about him was all true. And I so much wanted the forgiveness of my sins. I wanted the fresh start in life and the relationship with God that my friend had been telling me about. But my hesitation was this. I, I said, well, if I do this, if I give my life to God, then what am I going to have to give up? How is this going to change me? Uh, I understood, and, and I believe rightly so, that I couldn't have it both ways, right? If I, if I was really going to make Jesus the Lord of my life, then that would have implications for how I lived and where I went and what I did. And at the time, I was, uh, I was into punk rock music at the time, right? And uh, my favorite band was Bad Religion. Just to give you an idea, this is their logo, okay? So needless to say, they're not really a Christian band, you know what I mean? Uh, they don't do the church circuit. Uh, and aside from music, you know, and, and being afraid of giving that up, which of course now I look back on and think was silly, but at the time it was really worrying me, you know. Uh, I, I also, you know, aside from that, I, I like to do things and I aspired to do things, which now as a parent, I hope that my kids will never do, right? And uh, my fear was, if I give my life to Jesus, then I'll have to give all that up. 
I'll never get to do those licentious things that I was planning to do, right? I'll have to give up uh, all those things, and, and my view was I'll have to become some boring, uptight loser, and I'll have to trade in bad religion for Amy Grant, right? And I'll have to trade punk rock for Stephen Curtis Chapman. And I'm sorry if, I, if there's any big Stephen Curtis Chapman fans, but at the time, punk rock and Stephen Curtis Chapman, it seemed like I might as well just die, right? And, and just stop, I'd, I was afraid I'd have to stop doing everything that was fun or that I thought made life worth living. But, but I came to this point after wrestling with, with this decision, right, whether or not I want to give up all these things to follow Jesus, where I became so desperate for the forgiveness, for the fresh start and the removal of fear that was being offered to me in the gospel that I wanted those things so bad I didn't care what it would cost me, right? I, I was ready to become the biggest Amy Grant fan in the world. I just, I wanted to have that deep rest in my soul that comes from knowing that you're cleansed and redeemed, right, and forgive, forgiven. And so I gave my life to Jesus, and I told him that night as I, as I knelt beside my bed, I said, God, if you will take away my sins, then I'll give you my life. I, I won't hold anything back. I'm yours, all in. And you know what? I got more than I bargained for. You know, I thought I was giving up so much, but in, in reality, I got back so much more than I ever put in. It, it's almost laughable, you know, now that I think about it. I gave God the little that I had to give. I gave him my life as a young person. I dedicated it to him, and I said, here you go. Do with it whatever you'd like. And I'm telling you, I got back way more than I ever put in. When I gave control of my life over to the Lord, and I, I gave up all that stuff that I'd been holding on to, that it had been in fact keeping me from him, it stood between me and him, right? And, and I became fully his. I was afraid that my life would become boring. But in fact, just the opposite happened, right? That's when I really started to live, right? I had to step out of my comfort zone. We started doing these things with my church outreaches and, and doing things that I had never done before. Uh, I, that was when I really, my life became exciting actually. In the summer of 2001, I spent all my money. I had gotten uh, some gifts at the time of money and I spent all my money to go on two mission trips. One of them was to Hungary. And a few months later, uh, I came back from Hungary and I worked full time. And then again, I spent all my money and I moved to Hungary with a backpack. It wasn't even a big backpack and it was full of a couple books. I had this gigantic Bible, you know, at that time. And, uh, and I had some clothes and that's all I took with me. And at the time, again, what did I think? I thought, I am giving up everything to follow Jesus. But in the end, I ended up getting way more in return than I would than I thought I was actually giving in, right? I, I got way more back than I ever put in. Because uh, it, it was it was when I gave up everything, when I dedicated everything to him, when I didn't hold anything back that he gave me abundantly more. Not only did he give me more than I gave up, but he gave me more than I would have ever expected or imagined. And that's happened a number of times uh, over the years. Most recently, when uh, my family, we moved back here to Colorado. 
And it's ironic, isn't it, that I was afraid that if I give my life fully over to him, that my life will become boring. Because the years that I have followed him, the years that I've been on this journey of faith and walking with him and obeying him and serving him and not holding anything back and being willing to give up everything should he ask me to, these have been, hands down, the most exciting and fulfilling years that I can possibly imagine. And that's the irony, right? And the irony is if I had chosen, on the other hand, to hold on to those other things, right? To not give up those things in order to follow Jesus. The things that I was so worried about giving up and afraid of losing. I am convinced that my life would have actually been boring, right? But that's the exact point of what Jesus said. Whoever tries to hold on to his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, who gives it all up for my sake, will find it. It's in laying down your life like Hannah did. It's in giving up the things which you desire most and saying, Lord, it's all yours. Just take it. Do whatever you want with it. Whatever you want to do, I'm all in. No area of my life do I withhold from you. Not money, not possessions, not hopes, not dreams, nothing. I give it all to you. I lay it all down. And it's when you do that that you really begin to live. I want to encourage you today to give it all up to him to dedicate yourself to him fully, to hold nothing back, to be like Hannah, and and you will realize that you will get more than you bargained for. Hannah had fallen into the trap that many of us do. She had taken a good thing, a good desire, and she had made it the ultimate thing in her life, the sole measure of the worth and value of her life. For her, it was children. For you, it might be something else. But it was when she let go of that, it was when she dedicated that to the Lord that she got much more than she ever bargained for. When Jesus wanted to feed 5,000 people, there was a boy there and he didn't have very much at all. He basically had a lunchbox, right? He's got two fish and five loaves and he takes what the little that he has and he dedicated it to the Lord. He said, I don't have much, but what I do have, it's all yours. Take it, do with it whatever you want. And Jesus took the little that that little boy had brought to him and he multiplied it and he did a great work, a miracle. And you too, if you are willing to give God the little that you have to offer and dedicate it all to him, he will take it and he will give back way more than you ever would have bargained for. Finally, after seeing Hannah's predicament and Hannah's prayer, the last thing we see is Hannah's praise. Let's read this last section from verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up along with her, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. 
For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And she worshipped the Lord there, or and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, nor let arrogance come forth from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillar of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So Hannah keeps Samuel at home until, she, until he's weaned. In, uh, in those days, they nursed children much longer than most people tend to these days. Uh, probably he was three or four years old at this point. So at this point, they return to the tabernacle. They give Samuel to the Lord to serve him in that place, just as Hannah had promised to do. And Hannah prays the Lord on that day. She sings this song, which is very interesting if you remember the song that Mary sang when she found out from the angel that she would have a baby. Hannah sings this song. And I think this is important because Hannah doesn't just seek the Lord with supplication, with requests, asking for things, but she also seeks the Lord in praise. And that is so important right because it's important that we close the circle that we give thanks and that we praise the Lord for the great things he has done in our lives not just continually asking for more for so many people their relationship with God their prayer life just consists of asking things of God and and there's so many people even people who aren't followers of Jesus who when they're in a bind They quickly make a bargain with God, right? God, let me pass this exam. Let me get out of this bind. Let me get out of this traffic ticket. And if you do that, then I will do anything, right? You make these gigantic promises. I'll go to church every day for the rest of my life. I'll give everything I have to the poor, right? But we need to make sure that our relationship with God consists of more than just asking him to bail us out. God is worthy of praise. He's worthy of adoration and magnification. And part of the reason we were created was for his praise and for his glory. So when we take time, like Hannah did, to praise God for who he is and what he's done, in a way we're fulfilling the very reason why we were born. The theme of Hannah's song of praise is one of the great themes of the Bible. It's one of the themes that we'll see throughout this book. The eternal conflict between the proud, self-confident heart and the humble spirit that looks to God in utter dependence. That's one of the great themes of this book, and it's one of the great themes of the Bible. And we see it here, and we'll continue to see it in the stories of Eli and Samuel and Saul and David and David and Absalom, right? And the question we got to ask ourselves is, 
Who will I be? The hard-hearted person or the humble spirit that depends on God with utter dependence? The message of the story of Hannah is this, that when you cast yourself and all of your dreams and all of your desires upon the Lord, when you make yourself utterly dependent on him, you end up finding not only what you were looking for, but you get way more than you ever bargained for. Amen? Let's stand and pray. I pray that you would experience that in your life today. Over these next few songs, we're going to be taking communion. We have the communion table set up there, and we encourage you all to take communion during these next few songs of worship as you're ready. And remember, the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of Christ shed for you in which we have the new covenant in his blood. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that although you do ask us to lay down everything, Lord, it's when we do that that we really begin living. Lord, those of us who have experienced that, we can bear witness of that. And those of us who haven't, Lord, those who are here today who have been holding back this or that area of their lives, help them to see, Lord, that in a sense they're holding themselves back. And Lord, I pray that everyone who's here today, that they would truly hand over their dreams they hand over everything they are and everything they have, put it all in your hand and say, Lord, do with it as you will. And that in doing so, they would find true life. So Lord, this morning as we remember your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, Lord, may we remember Jesus. We remember that he's the point of all of this or that it's all about him. It's all about what he has done for us to redeem us and to save us. Without him, it's all for naught. So, Lord, we thank you for the great redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the life that you offer us. Lord, as we take this and remember your life given for us, Lord, would you fill us with the light of life. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.